Father, thank you so much for your word and that we get to open it together this morning. And God, we count it such a privilege. Your beautiful words, God. And just as we, as we were just singing, Lord, open our eyes, Lord. Your word is food for famished ones. Give us food from your word. God, thank you so much for my brothers and sisters, Lord, and for the seriousness that you've planted in this church about the truth and about knowing you, Lord Jesus. Increase it more and more. Give us a taste of you this morning that causes us to hunger for more. God, please be with us. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we're in Genesis 33. So just try to remember, try to remember where we've been, where we've been thus far. Time out. Do I need to move this back, Jake? This? It's not that? Okay. <clears throat> try to remember where we've been so far. So we've got Jacob is heading back home, if you remember that. Jacob is heading back home. He's got his, his family, uh, several, child, several children that are in tow, headed with him back to the promised land. He's headed back home. It's been 20 years. You try to imagine someone that you haven't seen in 20 years. And he's about to see people that he hasn't seen in a long time. I'm sure he's excited to see everyone, to see his family, but he's very, very nervous about one person that he's going to have to meet as he goes home, and that person is Esau. If you remember, Jacob uh, did some horrific things to Esau. He cheated that man. He deceived that man. And now he's going to have to go back, and he's going to have to face this man. And Jacob, Jacob's very nervous about it. And so Jacob sends his servants ahead uh, to take this massive gift, if you remember that, uh, this massive gift of uh, different sorts of, of animals, cattle and things. He sends, sends it as a gift to Esau, uh, which we're going to find out in a minute was an act of restitution that he, he's wanting to reconcile with his brother. So he sends this gift ahead. And then the servants come back and they report back to Jacob that Esau has, has uh, begun to come this way to meet you. And he's got, and by the way, he's got 400 men with him. Um, he doesn't give him a reason why. He just said, Esau's coming with 400 men. And you imagine how that lands on Jacob. He's afraid. He's fearful. And Jacob begins in chapter 32 to pray. And we get his prayer in Genesis 32. As he calls out to God and he asks God, Lord, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. God, please deliver me. He, he, he begins to remind God of the promises that He's given to him in prayer. So he goes to God in prayer. After he's done praying, he begins to set his family in order and get his family ready to meet Esau. And once his family's in order, then he goes to be alone again. He's going to go cry out to God in prayer again and get alone with the Lord. And in that moment is when God begins to wrestle with Jacob. So God initiates this wrestling match with Jacob. Now he finishes this wrestling match, and as we saw last week, 
He's exhausted. This is going on all night long. He's exhausted. He's crippled. But he's given a new name. Exhausted and crippled, but he's given a new name. And isn't it like God to do that? He's, Jacob's getting ready to meet what might be his enemy, what, what might be the fight of his life. And so what does God do the night before? Cripples him and wears him out. No trust in the flesh. And you're about to go meet Esau. So what will Esau do? Will Esau attack him? Will Esau uh, kill him and murder all of his family? What's Esau, what's Esau going to do? And we're going to see that in chapter 33. So let's look at it together and read Genesis 33 together. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and the 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No, please. If I found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that, it, that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of His servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, but Jacob journeyed to, to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. There the name, therefore the name of the place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram, and he camped before the city. 
And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. Alright, so let's talk for just a minute about the structure of this passage. Just the plain sense. What do we have here? What, what are we seeing here in this passage of Scripture? What's the structure of this text? Verses 1 through 3. So your first three verses. Verse 1 through 3. We see Esau uh, is coming. Esau is on his way. And Jacob lifts up his eyes. And he sees Esau and the 400 men on his way. So he begins to set his family in order. And he begins to move out ahead towards Esau, and he's doing it very humbly. It says he prostrates himself. Can you picture it? Seven times he prostrates himself before he finally gets right up to Esau. That's the first three verses. Then verse 4, what's Esau going to do? It says here that Esau comes peaceably. He embraces Jacob. They're hugging and kissing and weeping. This is a time of reconciliation between these brothers. These brothers who have been enemies, who have been at enmity with one another, are now reconciled. They're experiencing reconciliation. Now the idea of reconciliation is that you have two people, they're they're at enmity, they're enemies with one another, and yet they make peace. Enemies who become friends. In Genesis 33, really, you could... If you had to put one word over Genesis 33, it would probably be the word reconciliation. This man Jacob, who as we've been seeing, has been reconciled to God. He's made peace with God. The enemies have become friends between him and God. Now he's turned to his brother, and he is now reconciled with his brother. And so we have an answered prayer here. Remember in chapter 32, verse 11... Jacob prays, God, please deliver me from the hand of my brother. And here we see God has done it. God has heard his prayer. And there they are, hugging, kissing, and weeping before one another. Brothers who love one another. And so, then we get to verse 5. In verse 5 through 15, we see four exchanges between Jacob and Esau. Four exchanges happen between Jacob and Esau in verses 5 through 15. The first one is in verse 5 through 7. This is where uh, Esau is introduced to Jacob's family, to Jacob's children. Esau asks him, who are all these people that are with you? Who are these children? And Jacob says, these are the children whom God has graciously given to me. And he's introduced to Jacob's family. The second exchange is in verse 8 through 11. And this is where Esau asked about What is this gift that you sent me? This massive gift, all these animals that you sent ahead, this this present that you sent my way, what's this all about? And Jacob says, I want to find favor in the sight of my Lord. And and of course, Esau, you know, they have a little back and forth. Esau says, no, 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 don't, don't worry about that. I've got enough. I don't need that. You keep it for yourself. And Jacob urges him on and says, yes, this is for you. Look, seeing you, it's like seeing the face of God and you've accepted me. Accept this gift from my hand. And he urges him, and Esau accepts the gift. Now, you need to see this as a moment of restitution where where Jacob is making restitution with Esau. This is not a bribe. This is not Jacob bribing Esau, but this is Jacob making restitution with his brother. He has wronged his brother. What did he do? He stole the blessing from him. 
And listen to how it says it in verse 11. If you're there, Genesis 33, verse 11. Jacob says, please accept my what? My blessing. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me. He understands that what I've done to this man, what I've done to Esau, is I've ripped his, the blessing from his hands and he's coming back saying, take this blessing from me. This is a moment of him wanting, he's desiring to reconcile with his brother. He's desiring to restore what was stolen, to right what was wrong. Then we get to verse 12 through 14, and we get the third exchange between Jacob and Esau, verses 12 through 14. And and essentially, Esau says, Look, won't you just come with me and we'll go together back to my home? And Jacob says, No, no, don't worry. Very politely, he says, No, don't worry about that. You know, it's going to be real hard on the the animals we have here. It's going to be real hard on our children. You just go on ahead. So, very politely, he turns down this request that you just come on home with me. So they're reconciled together, but they're not on the same path. Esau's moving outside the promised land. Jacob's moving towards the promised land. And then the fourth exchange is in verse 15. You see it there where Esau offers protection to Jacob. Esau says, well, look, if you're not going to go with me, then how about I leave a few men behind? And as these men are left behind, they can protect you and watch out for your family and and your flocks and the things that you have here. And again, very politely, Jacob says, no, there's no need for that. There's no need for that. Let me find find favor with my Lord. So that's the four exchanges there in verse 5 through 15. Then we get to verse 16 through 20. And this is where we see Esau and Jacob part ways. So they've now reconciled. But now starting in verse 16, they're about to part ways. Verse 16 tells us, that Esau goes back to Seir, which is outside the promised land. But we see Jacob moving closer and closer, first to Sukkoth, and he crosses that river and moves into Shechem. He's moved towards the promised land. He's in the promised land, and it says he builds an altar to God, this place where people call on the name of the Lord, where they worship God at this altar, and he names it the God, the God of Israel. The God, the God of Israel. So I hope you understand that as the plain sense, the structure of kind of what's going on here. And here's what I want to do. I want to get put before you three observations from this text of Scripture. Just three observations from Genesis chapter 33. And number one, first observation is this. I want you to see God's sovereign love for Jacob. God's sovereign love for Jacob. Now I'm putting two words together there. Sovereignty of God. And the love of God, and I'm saying the sovereign, his sovereign love for Jacob. Sovereignty of God. What is that? What comes to your mind when you think of the sovereignty of God? We're talking about the God who rules, the God who reigns, the God who is king that controls all things. He's the sovereign one, and everything is under his authority, and everything is controlled by him. You understand that? That the sovereignty of God, nothing is outside of his control. Nothing. Not a sparrow that falls to the ground. Not a leaf that falls from a tree. Nothing is outside of our sovereign God's control. That's what we mean when we say sovereign. What about when we say the love of God? The love of God. We're talking about God's affection for His people. That our God is not just a mechanically sovereign God, but He's a God of love, a God of affection. So it's His affections towards 
His people. Now, often, oftentimes, the sovereignty of God and the love of God gets disconnected. But what does the Scripture do? The Scripture slams these two things together. And I want you to see that clearly. That the Scripture slams together the sovereignty of God and the love of God. And let me just read a couple of passages to you to help you see that. Deuteronomy chapter 7 is one. Deuteronomy chapter 7, listen to verse 6 through 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. You hear the sovereignty of God in that? That God chose you to be His people. Out of all the peoples, He chose you to be His people. Keep listening. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers. Did you hear those two things mingle? The sovereignty of God and the love of God. Then when we talk about God choosing and making these decisions sovereignly, another way He said it in this passage is He set His love on you and chose you. Let me show you another place. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. Listen to this. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth and all that is in it. Yet, so all that belongs to God, yet, it says, the Lord set His heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. He interchanges these two things. I've chosen you, sovereign God. I've set my love on you. This is the love of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. It says He chose us in Him before, the, before time began. What do you mean? Is this like a mechanical sovereignty of God? A mechanical choosing? No. Ephesians 1.5 says, In love, having predestined you to adoption as sons. In love, having predestined. In love, having chosen. Sovereignty of God and love of God. And this is what I want to put before you. That what we see in Genesis 33 is the sovereign love of God towards Jacob. Now, it's really important that you see this. Because here's the thing. God is sovereign in the life of Esau. And God is sovereign, in control, sovereignly in control in the life of Jacob. And that's bad news for one and good news for the other. Why? Because Malachi 1-2 says, Jacob I love and Esau I hated. Think about when you put these two things together. That God is sovereignly in control and He loves you. In Christ, He loves you. Can you imagine that? The one who is sovereignly in control of all things loves you. Like he does Jacob, and we, and we see it here in our passage. I want you to be encouraged by this. How do we see God's sovereign love towards Jacob in this passage? And I want to I um, put that on display by asking three questions, okay? I want to ask you three questions. One question is this. Why did Esau not kill Jacob and his family? Why didn't Esau kill Jacob? Jacob. Here's what I'm telling you. Because of the sovereign love of God towards Jacob. That's why Esau didn't kill Jacob. Listen to Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord, and like the rivers of water, he turns it whichever way he wishes. Do you understand that? 
That's the sovereignty of God that the men's hearts are in His hand and He turns it any way He so pleases. That is the sovereignty of God. And in this passage, God aims His sovereignty towards the one that He loves and changes Esau's heart. The one that wanted to murder his brother embraces him. This is the sovereign love of God as He protects Jacob, just as He promised He would. A second question. How should we think about Jacob's children from these four different women? How should we think about Jacob's children from these four different women? Remember, they were birthed out of sinful decisions. These children were birthed out of polygamy and adultery and evil competition. How should we think about these children? Here's how we should think about it. Those children, that's God's sovereign love towards Jacob. Look with me at Verse 5, chapter 33, verse 5. Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, and he said, Who are these with you? And Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servants. How, how should you think about Jacob's children? Those are the ones that God graciously gave to him. This is the sovereign love of God towards Jacob. But you might say this, you might say, But what about all the sin? What, what about all the sin surrounding this situation? What about the sin that these children came about in polygamy and adultery and sinful and evil competition? But how can you say it's the sovereign love of God is graciously a gift from God when all that sin is there? How can you say that? Because listen to me, sin did not originate with God, but sin does not thwart God's plan. Sin, even sin, even evil men and sinful men bend to the ultimate will of God because our God is sovereign. And in this situation, God, our sovereign God, pointed and aimed His love at Jacob and gave him these children. He graciously gave him these children. Third question. How should we think about Jacob's wealth that he obtained from Laban? How should we think about Jacob's wealth that he obtained from Laban? Should we think, man, Jacob just really lucked out. He can't, you remember the, the changing, the, how uh, Laban changes wages ten times? He said, look, you can have the spotted ones. And then all the ones at birth were spotted. So, okay, uh, change that. You can have the striped ones. And then they, you know, all the, the calves and stuff came out striped. Okay, you can have the black ones. All of them came black. You can have the white ones. All of them came white. It, it, do you remember that? Did he just luck out? Did Jacob just get lucky here? Or do we see this, that even his wealth is the sovereign love of God towards Jacob? Look with me at verse 11. Chapter 33, verse 11. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because, listen, this is what, how Jacob attributes, what Jacob attributes his wealth to. God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. God has dealt graciously with me. So what I want you to see in this chapter, one of the things I want you to observe is the sovereign love of God towards Jacob. It's beautiful. And if you're like Jacob, you're a man or a woman of faith, that your hope is in Jesus Christ and that you are, you are in Christ Jesus, you belong to Him, then in the same way, the sovereign one who controls all things and even sin bends to His ultimate will, He loves you. That God loves you. Now can you see, Church of Jesus Christ, Grace Community Church, 
Can you see the sovereign love of God towards us in Genesis 33? Can you see the love of God towards us, the sovereign love of God towards us in Genesis 33? And I, and I hope you say, yes, I can see it. And I want to help you see it. Here's, how, here's a way you can see it, okay? Here's how you can understand it. This is not just a random story. You know, a brother sent me, sent me a message just this week and said, man, do you have any, you know, I read these kind of, these stories in the Bible that seem so random. I don't know what they're there for. And, 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 and I understand that, and I tried to give him some resources to help him with some of that. But listen, this is not, this is one of those stories. This is not just a random story. You say, what do you mean it's not just a random story? Think about who Esau is meeting right now. Esau's being reconciled to Jacob. He says, who are these that are with you? Think about these children that Esau's meeting. Who's he meeting right now? He's meeting these children that are the inheritors of the Genesis promise that in your seed all nations will be blessed. In your seed is coming and all nations bless her. He's meeting the very beginnings of the nation of Israel that these children will become the nation of Israel and their tribes will literally be named by these children that he's meeting right now. So he's me, and, and think about this, Satan will love nothing more, knowing that one's coming that's going to bless all nations, Satan will love nothing more than to use Esau to destroy it at the very beginning. Murder Jacob, murder his children, and stop this seed of the woman stuff from the very beginning. But guess what? Our God in sovereign love won't allow it to happen. He raises up this nation, through this nation comes the Christ, and in the Christ, this is God's sovereign love for us, He's reconciling the world to Himself. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 through 20, it says, God was in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to Himself, not imparting to them their iniquities. That Christ came through these children, through these people. Therefore, Genesis 33, God's protecting them. Genesis 33, these events are God's sovereign law for His church because through them He brings about Jesus who died for sinners, risen from the grave. I hope you see His sovereign love here towards you. Second thing I want you to observe is that in Jacob, as we look at Jacob, in Jacob we see true repentance and reconciliation to God. In Jacob, we see true repentance and reconciliation to God. It really has been sweet to think about Jacob. Jacob's this man, this this schemer of a man, this evil, evil man that, that... that uh, deceived his own blind father out of greed, stole from his brother. This evil man, it's been so sweet to see this evil man truly repentant toward God and reconciled to God over the last few chapters that we've been meditating on together. It's been sweet to see Jacob transformed from the schemer that he was to the man of faith that he is now. Now, what I said is that in Jacob we see true repentance. We see true repentance. Now why do I say true repentance? Is there a false one? Is there such thing as a false repentance? Yes, absolutely. There's such thing as a false repentance. I think many people would have, would have checked the box of Esau being one who is repentant. He's weeping, is he not? The man's weeping, and yet Hebrews 12 tells us that man was not repentant. Though, though he's weeping, though he has tears, he's not repentant. 
And we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, that there's a godly sorrow that leads to repentance, but there's a worldly sorrow that leads to death. It's a false repentance. But what we see in Jacob is not a false repentance, but a true repentance and a true reconciliation to God. Now, how do we see that? How do we know that Jacob's repentance is sincere? How do we know that Jacob's repentance is, is genuine? How do we know that? Well, generally speaking, we've been seeing it the last few chapters, right? We've been seeing Jacob, as he was, as we've been seeing his prayers, we've been seeing his faith before God, we've been seeing his humility, that his disposition has changed. We've been seeing this man say things like, I don't deserve uh, any of the things that you've given me, Lord. I don't deserve any of the loving kindness and the faithfulness. I went into, the, I went into Haran with a staff and I've come out with two counts. We see him attributing glory to God and the gifts of his children and his wealth and all these things. So we've been seeing that his repentance is true. His repentance, we've been seeing evidence of real and genuine reconciliation. But more specifically, what do we see in Genesis 33? How do we see that this man's repentance is true, that his reconciliation is real according to Genesis chapter 33? And it's this, it's Jacob's desire to reconcile with his brother. You see it in his desire to reconcile with his brother. Now Jacob has deeply, as we've already said, Jacob has deeply wronged Esau stole his blessing and cheated this man and spit in his face and then left 20 years ago. He's wronged this man, but now we see in Genesis 33, he, after he's destroyed this relationship, 20 years later, Jacob comes back, repentant towards God, reconciled with God, and he wants to now make it right with Esau. Now, how do we know he wants to make it right with Esau? Well, one reason we know that was mentioned by Dustin last week is the route that he took to get to this place. So he's headed back to that promised land. He's headed back home, but he takes a route that purposefully takes him towards Esau. He's moving towards Esau for a reason. He wants to reconcile with his brother. We see it. Another reason we see that is the restitution I mentioned just a moment ago, that, that the way he talks about that gift that he brings to Esau is, please accept my blessing. I stole your blessing, but please accept my blessing. He wants to make it right. He wants to restore what was stolen. And this is an evidence that Jacob is truly repentant, that Jacob is truly reconciled. This man wants to reconcile with those that he's done wrong. Now, have you ever considered this, this um, vertical, horizontal uh, concept? Have you ever considered this, this sort of vertical, uh, horizontal connection? That, that um, those who are reconciled to God, it affects your horizontal. That your relationship with God vertically affects your horizontal relationship with other people. Have you ever considered, ever considered that connection? I heard one man say it like this, Reconciled men seek reconciliation with men. Reconciled men seek reconciliation with men. A right relationship with God affects your relationship with other people. If you are truly repentant towards God, it makes you eager to clear yourself towards men. That's 2 Corinthians 7.11. If you're in true repentance towards God, it makes you eager, it says eager to clear yourself towards men. Now, 
This obliterates uh, this individualistic mindset that we hear so often. Look, my Christianity is just about me and my God. Not about other people, it's about me and my God. And this idea, this vertical, horizontal concept all throughout the Bible obliterates that mindset. It's not about just you and your God. Your God demands things of you towards this world and towards, towards other people. So I want you to think for a minute about this vertical, horizontal concept. It's all over the Bible. Think about the Ten Commandments. First four commandments, vertical to God. Last six commandments of those ten are horizontal towards other people. Think about the greatest commandment. They come to Jesus, and they don't say, Hey, Jesus, tell us the top two commands. They come to Jesus and say, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's vertical. And then he gives this for free. He says, in the seconds like it, love your neighbors yourself. You see this connection? Let me tell you a really clear place to see it. Listen to this. Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read to you verse 8 and 9. Luke 19. Listen to verse 8 and 9. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Was he saved because he said, all those I've defrauded, I'm going to give it back fourfold. Is that why he was saved? No, we know that's not true. But Jesus looks at this man, and what is the evidence that he's now in right relationship with God? That he wants to make it right with men. And he says, salvation has come to this house. How do you know? Look at what he's doing. Look at him wanting to make it right with those that he's wronged. There's this vertical connection, this vertical, horizontal connection connection. We see the same thing in Matthew chapter 18. Remember this story where Jesus says, look, a king, here's this king and, and a servant of the king has debts to the king. And the king forgives all the debts of that servant. And he says, thank you. And he worships and the servant moves on. All his debts are forgiven before that king. And then that servant goes to his fellow servant. And to that fellow servant who owes him much less, by the way, he owes him much less. He chokes him out to get what he owes. And then the king comes to him and he says, shouldn't you have had pity on your fellow servant, horizontal, just like I had pity on you, vertical? And this connection is all through the Bible. We see it in Genesis 33 as Jacob, a man who's truly repentant, Jacob, a man who's reconciled to God as he moves back towards the promised land, desires, I need to reconcile with that man that I have wronged. I need to reconcile with Esau. And God grants him that. And these men, these men, their relationship is restored. Now, Grace Community Church, how do we apply this? Grace Community Church, how do we apply this? Now, I want us to focus our attention on relationships within this church. Because that's certainly true. That when you're, One of the ways your reconciliation to God is spoken about in 1 Corinthians 12 is that you were all baptized into one body. And so, when you were reconciled to God, something happened between you and the body of Christ. So I want us to, to apply this idea of vertical, horizontal connection. I want us to think for a minute about your relationships within the body of Christ. Has your vertical relationship with God affected 
your relationships within the body of Christ? Has it had an effect within the body of Christ? If you're reconciled to God, you are not at liberty to settle for broken relationships within this church. You can't just do that. You're not at liberty to say, well, it's just me and my God. It doesn't matter about these relationships. Listen, if you're reconciled to God, you are not at liberty to settle for broken relationships within this church. You must reconcile. You must move forward like Jacob towards Esau. Has your vertical relationship with God affected your relationship with the body of Christ? Listen to this verse. Matthew chapter 5. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. As we think about applying this concept, I think this verse gives us a lot of insight. Matthew 5, I'm going to start in verse 23. Listen to this. So if you are, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar, and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Doesn't that sound like Jacob and Esau? That here he is. He's headed to the promised land to build that altar in Shechem to the glory and praise of God. But first, what must I do? I've got to go reconcile with my brother. I've got to go reconcile with him first. Then I'll go to the promised land. Then I'll build the altar. So think about this for a moment. There you are. You're at the altar of worship before God, and you remember that there's a problem here. That you're going to worship vertically, but you remember there's a horizontal problem. He says, listen, first, stop, go your way, be reconciled to your brother, then come back and offer, and offer your gift. Now look, I, I want you to think about this. I want you to apply this. Where are you at with this? As you worship God right now, as we worship in song and worship in prayer and worship through the Word of God, are there, are there things left undone within the body of Christ? Are there things left undone? Now, I'm not the chief shepherd, so I don't know every situation in our church, every situation in the room. The chief shepherd knows all of it. Jesus knows all of it. But here's something that I have asked God to do. I ask God, Lord, from Genesis 33 and from Matthew 5 and from this, this example of Jacob being reconciled to his brother, God, purify your church. I don't know things like he knows, but Jesus knows about every bitterness in the heart toward another person. Jesus knows about every offense that's just left there, undealt with. Jesus knows about every ounce of unforgiveness in this church. He knows all of it. All of it. And my prayer has been, God, purify your church. Use this word. Use Genesis 33. Use Matthew 5 to clear us of that stuff in this church. So I want to encourage you to take Matthew 5 to heart. When you come to worship, when you come to the altar, and there you remember your brother's got something against you, first go be reconciled to your brother, then come. Then come and offer your gift. Like Jacob, like we see here with Jacob. Now, there's been things over the years that have surprised me. I say this as my brothers and sisters in this church, they surprised me, they saddened me of offenses that have been there between, between brothers and sisters in Christ. And then as you dig into those things, it's things that, that you come to find out were some offense that began a year ago or two years ago or five years ago, and it just sat there and haven't been dealt with. Listen to me, brothers and sisters in Christ. That is so destructive. Don't let it divide this church. It seems like it's not serious to you, but listen, it's so destructive. 
is so destructive. Now, if you're sitting here and the Holy Spirit is bringing things to your mind even now, things that need to be dealt with within our church that are being brought to your mind, if that's true, listen, don't ignore that. I'm begging you, please don't ignore that. L listen to this verse of Scripture. If you, if you ignore this, this is the danger. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14, it says this. Just listen. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it. This is for everybody in the church. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Doesn't that urge you? That there's this call within the church, church of Jesus, see to it, look around you, see to it, that no root of bitterness springs up, and by it many become defiled. Please don't ignore it. Now what would cause you to ignore it? You know, I think what causes people to ignore it is, is ignore broken relationships or bitterness or offenses or unforgiveness. What causes people to ignore it is that that obedience feels costly to us, does it not? That obedience feels costly. That if I, if I do this, then it's going to cost my pride or, or it's going to cost an awkward conversation or, or it's going to cost some sort of relationship tension for a time. And it's costly. But listen to me. Be encouraged by Jacob. Think about this man. In order to go after reconciliation, he risked his life. He could have easily went straight to the promise and instead he risked his life with a man that best he knows wants to kill him. He goes and he faces it. He faces it head on. So obedience in this area is costly, no doubt, but I want you to imagine the joy that Jacob and Esau feel in that moment as they're reconciled. And as Jacob goes to the promised land and the joy and the, and, and the relief he can feel as he builds that altar and calls on the name of the Lord and offers up that sacrifice that he's doing it having first reconciled to his brother. you imagine the joy? The joy he can, the joy he experiences there. All right, third observation. Third and last. In Esau, we see a nice man on a path to destruction. We've seen something in Jacob. What do we see in Esau? In Esau, we see a very nice man on a path to destruction. Now, Esau is presented to us in Genesis 33 as, as just really a nice man. Think, think about what we see here. He's got kindness. Esau has hugs to give. He's, he's loving his family here. He's hospitable. He says, you come on home with me. He's protective over those who need help. He says, let me leave some men with you. Think about, think about Esau here. He's, he's just the good old boy, right? He never killed nobody. Ever killed nobody? Blessed, he says. Don't have no needs. I have no need. You keep, keep it, brother. I've got no need. He's just a good old boy. Never hurt anybody. He'd give you the shirt off his back. He's just a good uh, Mississippi-type nominal Christian, right? Even says he hunts wild game, like a lot of you. So here he is. This is how he's presented. This kind and nice man. But here's my question. Is he reconciled to God? Is Esau, is, is Esau truly repentant? Is this nice man saved? And the answer is no, he is not, he is not saved. Hebrews 12, 17 makes it clear that this man did not experience repentance. 
Malachi 1-2 makes it clear that the, the banner over his life is Esau, God is hated. This man is not saved. This man is not converted. We see it even in Genesis 33, don't we? Think about verse 11. How does Jacob talk about the things that he has? Jacob says, all these things that my God has graciously given to me. In verse 9, Esau just says, I got enough. I got enough. You get to verse 16 and we get this real clear picture that they part ways that yes, they're reconciled, but they're not on the same path. Esau heads straight back. He's not going to the promised land. Jacob moves his way towards the promised land, builds the altar, and worships the living God. These men are on two different paths. Jesus spoke about these two paths as the broad way and the narrow way. The broad way that's easy and leads to destruction and hell, and the narrow way that leads to life that's difficult and few people find it. And Esau's on the broad path, and Jacob, and Jacob is on the easy path. Now, several weeks ago, if you remember... Dustin charged us, uh, he charged us with these words. He said, don't be an Esau. He said, don't be an Esau. Now, do you remember that? Esau has got the promises of God, the blessing and promise of God, sitting right in front of his face, but he's bored with those promises, and he says, what's for lunch? And Dustin charged us, said, don't be don't be an Esau. Now, that's not just Dustin's push. That's the push of Hebrews chapter 12. Did you hear it a moment ago? Hebrews chapter 12. It says it here in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. No root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. Listen, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau. Don't be an Esau, Hebrews 12 says. Don't be an Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Don't be an Esau. That's the push of Hebrews 12. Now, I just want to add to that push. I want you to think for just a minute. Esau to us is such a clear example of nominal Christianity that's so prevalent in our land. It's such a picture of nominal Christianity that's so prevalent in our land. Think about it. He's got, Esau's got godly parents, right? He knows the promises. He understands some truths, some important truths, right? Esau gets that. Uh, Esau never killed anybody prosperous, right? He's, he says, I got enough. Basically said, it's just nominal Christianity. Esau's so nice. He's just a, just a good guy. He's just a nice man. But niceness doesn't save. I heard, read in one book, uh, not, uh, not nice, but a new creation. Niceness doesn't get you to heaven, but a new creation in Christ. And I think this is what we're supposed to walk away from we're supposed to take away when we read this with Esau. Now, I think there's a lot of really, really nice people in this world that are on the path to destruction, and I would be concerned in a large group like this that there's people in this room that are really nice and really kind, and, and you understand promises like Esau, and you, and you got godliness in your family like Esau, but on the wrong path to destruction. Now, what I want to do in closing is I want to read something to you. There's actually a lady in our church um, that used to be an Esau. Oh no. I'll even tell you her name. Her name is Nancy Flowers. Uh, she's, uh, most of you know her, but if you don't, she's one of the newer members of our church. And she's about to be baptized very soon. And so like I always do, the folks who are going to be baptized, 
They're going to share their testimony, and I ask them to send me an email of their testimony. And so yesterday I get this email of her testimony, and you'll understand as I read it to you, that I'm studying these things about not Esau's nice, but he's not new. He's sincere, but he's not saved. And it's a concern. Don't be an Esau. And you understand when, when, when I read her testimony to you, why, man, it just so it goes together so well with this takeaway from Esau. So I want to read this to you, and I hope, I hope that it resonates with somebody here. And we'll just read this in closing. It's Nancy Flowers' testimony. She says, I was saved from a life of nice. Sure, I'd been through some stuff, but it wasn't in the trauma that the Lord saved me. It was later, years later, when things were good. Good job, kids doing well, community volunteer and so on, and in the midst of what I thought was finally a good life, Something happened. I thought it was a midlife crisis. The music I listened to suddenly seemed revolting. The New York Times bestsellers I was reading seemed like garbage. The work I did, which included a lot of whining and dining, became empty and dirty, and I wanted to read the Bible for fun. This was the strangest midlife crisis ever. A sports, car, a sports car would have made way more sense to my unbelieving friends and family. No one in my highbrow Episcopalian life would have read the Bible at all, much less for fun. Even my kids gave me strange looks, the something's up with mom and the must be a female thing kind of looks. I changed churches and ended up as a small group leader at a new branch of a local megachurch. I had no Christians in my life, and it was good to be in a place where Jesus wasn't a curse word and, a, and he wasn't a good example. One of the college girls in my small group told me that her pastor had just published a book, and she thought I would like it. And that's what led to my conversion. Radical by David Platt. A few days later, on a business trip, I stopped for lunch at a Panera Bread in Tuscaloosa. I was reading this book as I ate lunch, and suddenly I saw my sin before a holy God. I'm sure the other people at Panera thought, what is wrong with that woman? I managed to stumble to the car while I cried out to the Lord. I was a sinner. Not nice, but filthy. I didn't know much then, but I knew that this wasn't me needing a quick blessing. I was undone. So at my age, I was a baby, but the Lord is, a, is an able teacher. I gobbled up the word and began to learn the difference between the nice and the believer. Even for an older new believer, maturity in Christ is a process. But as time went by, I began to see the Lord sanctify my past. Bit by bit, He made sense of things like a tapestry, weaving the bitter threads of my life together with His sweetness and producing in me forgiveness and contentment and love. The stony heart came to life like the stone animals in Narnia and beat with a new joy that I'd never experienced, the joy of the Lord. If you're not in Christ, older person, do not think that the grace of God has grown weaker over time. His power to save and transform you is greater than the rubble of your past. Run to Him now. If you're praying for a lost parent or a friend who is older, do not let up. Those workers hired at the end of the day got the same pay. Matthew 20, verse 1 through 10. If you've been saved by this amazing grace, and you already know my story, 
Because it's your story too. Like the man born blind, we can say one thing I do, I do know. That, th- that though I was blind, now I see. Like blind Bartimaeus, we've thrown off the cloak of sin and have come to Jesus. We are the sheep that was lost, and our great shepherd came to find us. My story and your story are his story, his amazing story. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and letting us meditate here. And God, we praise you for your sovereign love towards your people, that you are in control of all things and you love us, God. Give us hearts that trust you, that lean against that, God, that we would just trust you, Lord. That no matter what comes to pass, no matter what's going on, God, that you are sovereignly in control and you mean us good, not evil. God, I praise you for this reality that you have reconciled so many of us to yourself, Lord. And when you do that, you cause relationships amongst ourselves to be effective. And God, I pray that you would, let, you would help us, God, to take that seriously. God, if there are any offenses, any bitterness, any unforgiveness here in this church that's just sitting there, God, waiting to defile many in the future, God, I pray you, do it, you deal with it now. Use your word to drive out bitterness and offense, Lord. Give us a clean slate, God. Purify your church. And God, I pray for any Esau's in the room. God, I pray that you awaken them, God. Awaken their soul. God, we hate this enemy of false conversion and nominal Christianity that traps so many and comforts them until they go to hell. God, I pray that they will lose if there's... There's nominal false Christians here, God, that they would lose that comfort. That you would give them a holy disturbance about their soul. And like you did with Nancy, God, that you would awaken them from the dead, that you'd save them from nice and make them new creations in Christ. God, thank you for hearing our prayers. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.